in the series of Knowing God. We're looking at the attributes of God, We've seen his sovereignty, his eternality, his immutability, his holiness, and now, Lord willing, this morning we look at the omnipotence of God. If you have a Bible and you want to turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, there's a few verses we're going to refer to. And um, beginning in chapter 1, I say the book of Revelation, would you hear me make one more statement? It's one of my little quirks, and I confess to you my quirk. It's when people say, let's study the book of Revelations. <laughs> no, it's not Revelations. It's revelation, singular, not plural. So it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the whole, what the book is all about. The revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. John is the author, John the apostle. And if you look at chapter 1, verse 19, there's really a neat thing to see. And that is that it's one of the only books I know that actually where the author gives you the outline of the book. You don't have to formulate itself. You don't have to work about it. You don't, it's right there before you. Chapter 1, verse 19. Right therefore, the things that you have seen. Chapter 1. Write those things that are. Chapters 2 and 3. The seven churches of Asia Minor, which represent the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning you and me today who know the Lord. Those are the things that are. And then those that are to take place after this, that's chapter 4 to 22. So you've got a very simple outline that John gives right there. Now in chapter 4, John is caught up to heaven. And one of the things that, that he saw there, as revealed in chapter 5, is what Chemo and uh, Kimberly and the, the people up here on the worship team did such a masterful job on that uh, chemo. Boy, really moved my heart. Chemo sent the song to me, introduced me to it about four weeks ago, and I play it every day, several times in the day. It's on my playlist one, every, uh, on all my walks. I mean, it's just such a powerful word there in Revelation chapter five. John is weeping, the apostle, and he's standing before the throne of God, and he's looking up and there's a, there's a scroll, but it's sealed. And no one is able to open up the scroll to unveil what, what it's all about, what the revelation is. And then John is told, stop weeping, John, because even though you don't think anyone's worthy, there is one person worthy to open the scroll. It's the Lamb of God himself. Uh, that is worthy, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, the Root of David, the Lamb as though it had been slain with seven horns of power and his seven eyes, his omnipotence and his omnipresence. Horns in the Bible always represent power. Seven horns is the completion, the perfect power, and so it speaks of omnipotence. Why was Jesus worthy to open the scroll that no one else could open? Well, because he has the power, and that's what today's message is all about, his omnipotence, 
the power to open the scroll. And then what uncomes from out that scroll covers chapters 6 through 18. It has seven seals of judgment. The seventh seal then contains seven uh, trumpets of judgment. The seventh trumpet then conveys seven bowls or vials of judgment. If you trace the judgments through from seal one to, to the uh, last one, the bowl judgment and seven, they all intensify until if they continued at that same rate, the whole earth would be wiped out. And suddenly we see in John chapter 19 that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back. The church of the Lord is in heaven along with the martyred saints of the tribulation period. Do you ever get asked the question, do people in heaven know what we're doing down here? Well, what we do know is this. Those saints who were martyred for the cause of Christ in the seven-year tribulation period, which takes place after the church is caught up to heaven, John chapter 4, verse 1, that we, we, we know that many of them were martyred. And as they're up there now in heaven and still the tribulation period is going on, they start begging for God's justice and mercy so there's some awareness to what is taking place down here at the tribulation period. And then we see they, they blend their voices together in praise to God and it says that noise is so loud that it sounds like the ocean's waves crashing on the shore. And the occasion of their praise to God is his omnipotence. Listen to Revelation 19.6. This is when the chorus reaches its crescendo. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. There's his omnipotence again. He alone was worthy to open the scrolls. He alone is worthy to bring human history to its climactic, Closed through his second coming. If I had to single out a word that God has touched my heart with this morning as we've been singing these wonderful songs and heard sung, and now look at this text, it's the word worthy. He is worthy. But in this case, why is he worthy to open the scroll? Why is he worthy to answer the prayers of God's people and to return in his great glory and power? It's because of his almighty power. From God's first statement in the Bible, let there be light, to Revelation 22:20. 20, yes, Jesus says, I am coming quickly. Divine omnipotence is demonstrated. The voice, just the word spoken, that brought all things into existence sovereignly controls time, circumstances, events, and nature. So this morning we want to dwell on God's omnipotence. And I hope your heart will respond as mine already has, and I'm sure many of yours too, to the fact that he is worthy, and he is worthy of all our worship, honor, and praise. Let's look first of all at the description of omnipotence, where we see his power is almighty. The word omnipotent or Almighty, is used 56 times in the Bible. Nine times in the book of Revelation as a title for God. And it's the basis for the concept of omnipotence. 
In the Old Testament, you know if you've ever studied it much, there are a lot of different words for God. And every name has a meaning behind it, a primary emphasis, whether it's a Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. Or whether it's the first words that's used here in Genesis 1, Elohim, which is the word for creator God in Genesis 1. Another name related to his power in the Hebrew is El Shaddai, normally translated in our English texts by the Lord God Almighty. El Shaddai is the name he reveals himself to his barren people, like Job, totally broken. Like Naomi, lost it all. Like Abraham, barren. But then he makes and reveals himself as El Shaddai, and the barren becomes fruitful. Maybe some of you come today barren. Maybe you're just spiritually barren. Maybe there's another area of barrenness. He's El Shaddai. One of my favorite songs some years ago, 1982, I guess, was Amy Grant, El Shaddai. I've listened to that song 50 times this week. El Shaddai, El Shaddai. El Elyona Adonai. Age to age, he's still the same by the power of your name. El Shaddai, El Shaddai, Kanane Adonai. We will praise and lift you high, El Shaddai. He's the Lord God Almighty. His power is almighty. Notice his power is absolute, secondly. When we say his power is absolute, we mean simply that God is capable of doing anything and everything as long as it is in keeping with his moral attributes. God can do anything he wants to, anywhere he wants to, anytime he wants to. All power within God is generated from God and is not dependent on anything else or anyone else. The psalmist says, Power belongs to the Lord. He can do anything, anything, anything. And listen to this. He can do anything as easily as he can do anything else. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, I'm, I was thinking, humanly speaking, last night, I was thinking that we are celebrating putting a man on the moon 50 years ago. Well, that took a lot more power and knowledge and everything else than putting a little toy together to sell in a shop. But with God, one thing is not harder or more difficult than another thing. When God creates a sparrow, and then when God creates all the solar system universe, it doesn't take any more for one for the other for God. Because he is omnipotent himself, full of power, full of strength. God is all-powerful. Let me put it on a practical level. For those of you who may have people that don't know the Lord. And I want you to think of someone that, you, if, if the truth were known, you'd say, you know, this person's almost beyond, he's just too hardened. 
Did you know it doesn't take God any more power to save your 80-year-old grandfather than it does for a little six-year-old child in junior church this morning? It doesn't take any more power. Why do we give up? Why do we stop praying? Do we really believe God is omnipotent to take that most hardened heart and transform it with the touch of his saving hand? He touched me. He touched me. And oh, the joy that fills my heart, my soul. On Saturday a week ago, a blackout hit Manhattan, leaving large swaths of the city in darkness. It struck at 6.47 p.m., affecting most of Manhattan's west side from 32nd Street all the way to 72nd Street. Thousands without power, shut down subway lines, Broadway shows, elevators, stranding thousands. If you watched it as I did, one of our favorite things to do is to go to New York City for a day or two and take in a Broadway show. But I'll tell you, I don't want to be in one of those hotels when the lights all go out. Or worse yet, in one of those elevators going up to the 22nd floor as some were stuck there. Why? The power simply stranded thousands. And you know what? God has never once had a spiritual blackout of power. Never once. We lose power. We lose strength. Some of us are getting older. We're losing power. We're losing strength. I just thought of something I shouldn't even think about, but <laughs> about a golf game. <laughs> and you know, I golfed the last Monday night, nine holes, and I won't say who I golfed with, some present today. But these guys kill the ball. I mean, absolutely kill it. You know, it takes me 14 strokes to get where their drive is. I mean, it's not quite that bad, but it's pretty much. But they're, when you get old, they're going to find out too. When they get older, you lose 10 yards a decade almost. Uh, that's just the way, way it goes. Dumb illustration. But it means we're all losing power. God has never lost one ounce of power. Which brings us to the question, are there limitations to God's power? And that's what we want to look at here just too quickly. Does God have any limitations to his omnipotence? And I put down two areas, natural limitations and self-imposed. The natural limitations are those things God cannot do because they are contrary to his nature. So that we say, for instance, God cannot lie. God doesn't have the power to lie. Why? It would violate he's the fact that he's the truth. God cannot be tempted to sin because he is absolutely holy. He cannot deny himself. God can never do anything that will violate or contradict his moral attribute of holiness, righteousness, and truthfulness. That brings great security to our hearts. This same God we trust today and we love and we worship, he's not going to change 100 years from now. His faithfulness will be there 10 billion years from now as it is today. He cannot contradict himself or renege on any of his promises. Self-imposed limitations include those things God has not chosen to include in his sovereign plan. As long as they're not, these are the ones not contrary to his nature, but he could have done them, but he chose not to. He chose not to spare his own son, and we are glad. He chose not to save all people, 
He chose not to choose all nations in the Old Testament, but one. He chose not to choose Esau, but he chose Jacob. He chose not to spare James the sword. He chose not to quench the fire that burned John Huss, the martyr for Christ, at the stake. And the list goes on. He could have stopped or done any of those things without being inconsistent with omnipotence, yet he gave people a certain amount of free will that allows us to make choices. And that puts responsibilities right back on our shoulders. And that's why I have a choice to trust in Christ as my Savior or to reject him. Some say God's grace is irresistible. That may be true. I don't know. It's an area that I'm, I've got. I know God can do whatever he wants to do. I know when Saul of Tarsus was on the way to Damascus, he struck him down and his grace was irresistible and his power. Lord, what will you have me to do? But in most cases, I see it's you as a man, as a woman, as a child. You have a choice. I will to receive him and trust him as my Savior and be forgiven forever and go to heaven. I will to reject him. And in so rejecting him, I choose separation from God. I would get on my knees. Honest to goodness, I would. I'd crawl to your seat and beg you to trust Christ today if you never have, if that would cause you to trust Christ. Please don't wait any longer. The choice is yours. No one can make it for you. The responsibility of man then goes to the Christian and the non-believer because someday not only our eternal destiny, yes or no, is decided, but then there's the judgment seat of Christ. I'll give an account for my life as a Christian. My works, my words, my faithfulness. Every unsaved person Though they're going to hell, they also have a judgment to face. The great white throne, Revelation 20. What are they judged for? Their works. They're already destined for hell. They're condemned. They're under the wrath of God. But some people have had light, 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 and more light, and they keep rejecting the light. Other people maybe haven't even heard the gospel of Christ. There's are degrees of judgment and wrath in hell, just like there are degrees of faithfulness for God's people in heaven. We have that responsibility. Only a sovereign, almighty, omnipotent God could give man the freedom to make moral choices. Anyone else than God would be afraid to do so. Let's close it out and look at the demonstration of the omnipotence of God. First of all, God's power revealed in creation. This seems to be the one we usually think of when we think of God's great power and his omnipotence. So Genesis says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God created. The Spirit was hovering over the face, the Holy Spirit. In the beginning was the Word, and all things were created by Him, and by Him was not anything made that was made. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God, operative in creation. Those words kind of say it all, doesn't it? If you and I are going to create something, 
We have to start with something. We need tools. We need wood. We need clay. We need paint. We need something from which to make something. But God, with nothing in his omnipotent hand, simply let there be light. And then the creation story, as we know it in Genesis 1 and 2, where his omnipotence is displayed. Many times in the Bible, whenever God wanted to encourage his people who were distraught, he would point to creation around them and remind them that he made it all. It shows the glory of the Lord, the firmament of the world, is his handiwork. It shows nothing is too hard with the Lord. This Wednesday, Lord willing, Muriel and I will be leaving and going up to Prescott, Maine, which is Muriel's home. So we'll spend a few days there, then we'll uh, speak at a church up in Mars Hill, Maine, uh, on Sunday morning, then I'll begin my 34th year in a row of teaching, bringing 10 messages from Sunday night to Friday at Living Waters, and I'll be back with you, Lord willing, the next Sunday. Appreciate your prayers. Uh, Muriel especially appreciates your prayers. She has to listen to 10 <laughs> messages. Gets a little bit old, trust me. One of the interesting things, if you ever go up north to Prescott, is the solar system model, which was built by the University of Maine, Prescott, and the space enthusiasts of Aroostook County. If you know anything about northern Maine, you don't even have to call it Aroostook County, you just call it the county. And in Maine, everyone knows you're talking about Aroostook County. The Maine solar system model covers the vast expanses of space in just 40 miles from Prescott down south uh, to Holton, Maine. They created this model in a scale of one to 93, one mile to 93 million miles, the distance from the Earth to the Sun. So then the, on the scale of one to 93 million miles, you can see a, also the size of the planets from Prescott to Holton, Maine. They're done according to scale and what their size is with the small ones, and then like Jupiter. And so they're all, and it's really kind of an interesting, uh, interesting thing to see. So beginning with the sun represented as a giant yellow ring cutting right through the northern Maine Museum of Science, the model reaches out across the rural highways and byways on down to Holton, Maine. Now they even have added some things with new discoveries 40, a few miles south of Holton down to Danforth. How long would it take to get from Earth to Neptune? Now there's talk about going to Mars. We've heard it, moon in five years again. The Voyager 2 spacecraft was launched on August 20th, 1977. It reached Neptune on August 24th, 1989, traveling 40,000 miles per hour. If that doesn't boggle your mind, Vega, one of our brighter stars of the sky, gives as much light as 55,000 suns. It's only 150 trillion miles away. They measured, of course, in light years. And I was reading this and a bunch of other things I just didn't have time to include. And then I conclude, an impuny little man. We look up and say, twinkle, twinkle, little star. <laughs> How I wonder what you are up above the world so high like a diamond. You know the dopey thing. Creation. 
God just spoke. It was there. For centuries, creation was a theological issue, not a scientific one. And then came Darwin, who took the subject of creation out of the realm of theology. And he tried to put it into the realm of human knowledge. Just a couple of things I want to say. If we want to understand creation, origins, how the universe came into existence, and everything that's in it, then we have to look at theology, not science. The source of theology is the inerrant word of God. Satan is trying to get his people to just start questioning any part of the Bible. Listen, let me tell you something. If you question any word of the Bible as inerrant, infallible, inspired, you are on a slippery slope, and the only way is down. It's the only way. So I'd like to ask a couple of questions that gives me an idea where people stand. I like to ask pastors or theologians a simple question. Do you believe in the virgin birth of Christ? I always remember the one man, pastor for 40 years. He said, very frankly, I don't think God is concerned with the sex life of Mary. Talk about blasphemous. I looked at him and I said, well, God did care about her sex life. He chose a virgin. What do you think about seven days creation? That'll get a discussion going. (laughs) Now, you can accept what Genesis says or you can reject it. But get past the idea that science makes any contribution to an understanding of creation. It makes none. None. Why? Because there's no scientific way to explain creation. God said, and it was done. Period. End of discussion. I don't need a scientist to try to, even a Christian scientist, a scientist who is a Christian... I don't even need that person. I don't need, when I look at the historicity of the Bible and I love to go to Israel, I don't need archaeological evidence. I don't care if there is or if there isn't. It doesn't change my my one iota. God spoke, the word of God is true, it happened, and if I can't prove it, I can't prove it. Let God be true and every man a liar. Simple as that. You can believe it or you can reject it. But that's all there is. I hope you believe it. I know you young people, that's exactly the opposite. And they'll, they'll laugh at you. In secular schools today, in secular university, you'll be mocked, you'll be laughed at, you'll be scorned. Because even if you look in Wikipedia, they talk about the myth of creation. But someday, they're going to know the truth. Secondly, God's power revealed in the providential affairs of men. God reveals his power day by day in providence. The Heidelberg Catechism defines providence as, quote, the almighty and everywhere present power of God. God and the creature differ radically on the matter of being. God has being in himself. It's another attribute that we won't have time to study, but it's called acidity. It means God is totally self-existent. He has all life in himself while we move and have our life and our being in God. Don't say tomorrow you're going to do this. You don't know if God's going to give you another breath, another day, another minute, another hour. You don't have life in yourself. Everything you have, God has given you. What do you have, Paul asked, except God gave it to you? Wisdom, you don't have that except God gave it to you. Life, Life is in God. You have no life apart from God. 
God continues to uphold or preserve his creatures by the word of his power. Thirdly, God's power revealed through his government of the world. His omnipotence is superintending the affairs of the governments from the ages gone by to today. Nothing comes to pass by fate. No person becomes president or dictator or ruthless leader apart from God's sovereignty, who's working all things after the counsel of his little. Nothing lies outside the scope of his mighty rule. God does according to his will in the army of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand, none can say to him, what do you think you're doing? Thus we may be sure that whatever comes to pass anywhere comes to pass by the providential hand of God and according to his holy will. We live in a nervous world. Iran's taken a couple more British tankers. Israel, North Korea, China, Russia, Venezuela. Just look, pick up your news, and there you've got it all before you. It's constantly changing. Do you know since 1945, the end of World War II, do you know there's been 250 major wars in which over 50 million people have been killed, tens of millions homeless, countless millions injured and bereaved? Where is God? His steady hand, omnipotent hand, allowing the men to make choices, bad choices, evil choices, horrible choices. But God's steady providential hand is ruling over the affairs of men. And everything I believe is leading toward that day that we read about in Revelation 9 when human history culminates and and then the people say, how long, Lord, how long? And then all of a sudden, the Lord God omnipotent is on a white horse returning with his people, with his church, with the tribulation saints, the Old Testament saints. And he reigns a thousand years and then forever. Fourthly, God's power is revealed in his judgments. Think of the power that was unleashed when mankind laughed at Noah for 120 years. If you're a young person, you're a university student, and you've been scoffed at the university, so what? Toughen up. Okay, just get tough. Being a solid Christian, a growing Christian, you grow from soft skin and a thick heart, hard heart, to a soft heart and thick, uh, thick skin. You got it? Soft skin to thick skin, hard heart to soft heart. So let them come. Don't be a wimp. Don't wimp out. Don't flaunt it. Don't be a pain in the neck. But hold to what you know is true. The word of God. Think of all the power of Noah for 120 years and laughter stopped when God ripped the canopy around the earth and the whole canopy of the heavens fell and it flooded this whole earth. Think of how those persons felt when that door was shut, Noah and his family, and nobody could get in. And the rains kept coming and the whole earth was destroyed through the power of God. Think of when he rained fire and brimstone upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember Lot's wife? The beginning of the message we read about the culmination of human history when the Lord returns. And it says, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And a greater judgment is yet to come. Lastly, and I close with, God's power is revealed through his church. Preachers often save the best for last, right? This is so wonderful. You know the book of Ephesians breaks down in a wonderful way. Chapters 1 to 3 is your position in Christ. Chapters 4 to 6 
is your practice. Chapters 1 and 3, the whole thing tells you what God has already done, what's already happened, who you are in Christ, and who you are today. And chapters 4 to 6 now says, in light of this, you ought to start living so your life matches up to it. Remember in chapter 2, he says, and you who were dead in your sins and trespasses, he has made alive. Remember those wonderful verses? Listen as he goes on. Listen to his prayer at the end of chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, there it is again, toward us who believe that you and me, according to the working of his great might, another word for power, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Think of the power it took to raise Christ from the dead. When he raised him from the dead, it seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, place of authority and power, far above all rule, all authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the age of the one to come. We know that of Christ. Now listen to what it says about you. Chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace have you been saved. He's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where are you today? You are in heaven, seated with Christ at the right hand. That is your position. Why? God's not limited by time. We saw that on his eternal attribute. Time means nothing to God. So all the work of redemption is finished. The church is complete in heaven. Positionally, we are in Christ. I am as secure in heaven as Jesus is. So are you if you've trusted him. Practically, we know we're not in heaven. Got to wake up fast to that, don't we? But our position is in Christ. And it was the power of God that raised us up and seated us in heavenly places with him. So when God exalted Jesus' his right hand, he took to heaven exalted untold thousands of weak, poor, beggarly sinners and set them in heavenly places to reign with Christ. I'd call that exceeding great power, don't you? Listen, beloved, that is the power that God's word is available for those who have you have trusted in Christ. So praise standing in the middle of the omnipotence of God. Let me say it again. What is on your heart? What's the burden? What's the need? Pray standing in the center of the omnipotence of God Almighty. God, I can't do it, but you can. For if we really believe that God is omnipotent, we come in faith believing that he is. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we close with these thoughts. Because God is omnipotent, he is able first to save those who come to Christ. Remember what I said earlier? It's no harder for God to save your 80-year-old grandpa than it is your six-year-old granddaughter. It's no more difficult. Don't stop praying. Don't stop being a witness. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Because he's on the bit, he can secure those who have come to Christ. I know whom I have believed that he is able and you know the rest, 2 Timothy 1.12. To supply grace for every trial, my grace is sufficient for you. Are you suffering? Are you hurting? Are you weeping inside? 
God promises you for every little multi-shape of a trowel that he sends your way, some are little, some are like this, some are just gigantic. For every amount, there is a corresponding grace that he gives to meet that need. He supplies all grace that you need for every trial. He promises to strengthen every believer in Christian growth, Ephesians 3.20. He promises to sanctify the believer in body and soul and spirit before God. So taken together, these verses declare that God is able to save us for this life and for eternity, to keep us from falling into sin and temptation, to lead us to the best in human experience, and to sanctify us completely, all because what? The Lord our God reigns. He is omnipotent. John Piper said it right. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Shall we bow in prayer?